real, real conversation, conversation and some hard truths. Hard truths. Gangs, Gangs, drugs, drugs and, guns, and guns. Giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Welcome back, everyone. Nathan Romas with you once again. And today we have Scott Newark on the program. And here's his bio here. He's got quite a bit going on. Scott is a former Alberta Crown Prosecutor, Executive Officer of the Canadian Police Association, and Director of Operations for the Washington, D.C.-based Investigative Project on Terrorism. He served as Special Counsel and Vice Chair of Ontario's Office for Victims of Crime and as a security policy advisor to both the Ontario and Canadian Ministers of Public Safety. He is a uh, policy analyst and frequent public commentator on matters uh, ranging from criminal justice reform to border security, counterterrorism, critical infrastructure, cybersecurity, and Islamist extremism, uh, just to name a few. He is He's also served as an adjunct professor in the criminology department at Simon Fraser University, where he provided two courses in the former Terrorism Risk and Securities Studies Master's program. So welcome, Scott. Thanks, Nathan. So uh, it's quite the background, and we're <laughs> going to get into a bunch of it. But uh, can you kind of start us at the beginning and tell us uh, you know, where you're from and how you got to kind of maybe the start of okay. you know, where you are today? Uh, well, it, it actually goes back. Um, I, was, uh, it, I did my undergraduate uh, degree at Carleton University in uh, Ottawa, which is an interesting because it's the only university that has uh, an actual law program. Now, it's not you know a, uh, a certified legal studies program. That's a graduate. But I really liked it because it was also it was politics and history and everything else. And um, as I, you know, was going through this, uh, I ended up, but curiously, I ended up doing my uh, honors thesis on the reserve system, mm-hmm. um, and uh, which was ironic because I ended up as a prosecutor in Alberta, uh, working in the judicial district of Wetaskiwin, which it, uh, had uh, the uh, uh, the richest reserves in Canada. They used to call it Hobima in those days. I think they call it now Masquich something like that. Cheese. Yeah. But I decided that, you know, I was interested in maybe I'd pursue uh, going to law school. And so, uh, you know, I applied to a bunch. And as I like to tell people, I ultimately decided on the University of Alberta in Edmonton because of a unique feature of that university. They were the only one that accepted me. <laughs> so <laughs> I came out, I came out and uh, started law school in the late seventies. And as I've also told people, I uh, didn't really like law school. It was full of people who wanted to become lawyers. And um, so they had a great program called Student Legal Services. Mm-hmm. And you got to go to court and you could represent people on summary uh, conviction uh, matters. And I went to court and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I got, you know, it's interesting. I got an observation from the cases I was involved in. And I actually was involved in several, but one in particular, very, very high profile case. But I got the observation uh, that the uh, entity that had the most impact in being able to deliver quotation mark justice 
in individual cases, in my view, Mm -hmm. was the Crown Prosecutor. Because in cases where you were dealing with real bad guys, you could go after them real hard. But in other cases, you were looking to see, you know, what was the best actual outcome. And I've maintained that view about uh, our justice system uh, that the uh, I think the real genius of our justice system is its ability to deal with this offender, this offense. Mm-hmm. Okay, now. Uh, and again, because of some of my, you know, background in history, we didn't we didn't invent this just justice system, you know, uh, two years ago by the Federal Department of Justice officials. This is centuries old. It's part of our culture and a key element of our justice system and in its ability, uh, you know, to make those kinds of individual case decisions is that um, the officials operating within the justice system, whether it's police officers prosecutors, judges, or even, you know, corrections officers, probation officers, they all have discretion Mm -hmm. and they're expected to use their discretion in an appropriate fashion. And I I must tell you that one of the things that I find the most concerning in my, you know, it's been uh, approximately a 40 year career is a, uh, an ongoing, I think, degradation of the use of that discretion as our justice system has become increasingly risk-averse. Yes. And I, I've got a whole lot of examples of that that I've had throughout the, uh, the course of time, but the one in particular that really uh, probably had the most impact was um, uh, when I was a uh, law student, uh, these people, and this was before the, uh, the Charter of Rights, by the way, Okay, so just to put it in context, because uh, that changed everything. Um, but the um, we had uh, a couple of people come into our uh, office. There was these two couples, and they were uh, both uh, being brought to court under an obscure section of the criminal code that said that um, the uh, uh, police could go to the Crown and the Crown could seek an order taking away a person's lawfully owned firearms if they felt that the person having the firearms, it was a a potential threat to the safety of either others or even themselves. Mm -hmm. And so that's what happened. I'd never heard of this when these people came in. And so, you know, I look at this sort of thing and I went, Hmm, this seems kind of strange. You know, normally in criminal law, you do something that is defined by the law as being not, uh, permissible, yeah. and you know the crown's obliged to prove the specifics of it, and and then there can be a consequence. But in this case, there was nothing that they were charged with doing. Mm-hmm. This was essentially a subjective assessment. So I thought, well, this doesn't seem right to me. So I took the case and I went to court and I argued that uh, you know this wasn't really that it was unconstitutional. Now, you know, in those days, what unconstitutional meant was it was actually. Uh, provincial jurisdiction under property and civil rights and not federal jurisdiction under the criminal law. And um, lo and behold, I managed to convince the judge that that was the case and he struck down the law. So (laughs) as you can imagine, that got a lot of attention. But I got to tell you, it also uh, very much changed uh, or or impacted my mind about uh, firearms because um, I I remember one of the couples – Instead of when they got married, instead of changing exchanging rings, they exchanged bullets. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, and 
I remember going to court and there was somebody from the National Rifle Association out of the United States who'd come up to see the case in uh, being argued in court. And I remember him telling me that I was doing God's work. Hmm. I remember thinking to myself, uh, I'm not so sure this is a good idea. <laughs> now, that case was ultimately overturned. And ironically, it was a case that was cited when the uh, gun registry, long gun registry was first introduced and the provinces challenged it. Uh, but it was a very interesting insight and it had an impact on me as well in the sense of, you know, deciding that and seeing that the, uh, ability of the crown to use, uh, the discretion to get the, uh, quote justice was a really important, uh, feature. Mm -hmm. So I ended up and I won't, I won't bore you with the details, but as it may surprise you, I, while I was an, I was an articling student with the crown in Edmonton. And I sort of pissed off the chief crown prosecutor and as a result got banned. And I ended up going to uh, Wetaskiwin. A friend of mine who I'd gone to law school with was uh, down there as a defense counselor. And he said, yeah, you should try it. So I did. And I went down and um, I was so fortunate, Nate, that I had a, a boss. It was the chief crown prosecutor, a guy named uh, Dave Plows. Just a great guy. He became a judge in uh, Red Deer. I think he's uh, retired now. Mm -hmm. But... I learned so much from him, and even more importantly, uh, he had my back throughout all of uh, my uh, days as a uh, Crown Prosecutor because I ended up getting involved in some things that uh, caused some controversy, and uh, I started challenging uh, some rules. The most significant thing for me, though, was I built a very, very strong relationship with uh, policing. and mostly with the RCMP. We had, in our judicial district, only the city of Camrose had uh, municipal police. Mm -hmm. And it came about, and again, I won't bore you with all the details, but uh, I went to court one day in Camrose, and as I'm pulling up to the courthouse, I look, and there's all these motorcycles. I go, what the hell is this? And it turns out, uh, it, uh, I think it was called Operation uh, Breakup. And the uh, this was back in the days this would be uh, like 1981, I think. And it was back in the days before the Hells Angels uh, took over. There were gang wars that were going on really significantly. And uh, the anti-gang, bike gangs uh, unit was led by the RCMP out of Red Deer. And they used to always go and have an, uh, an event, a gathering of all the different gangs at uh, Coronation, Alberta. And uh, the RCMP decided that they were going to bust it up. And uh, so they did, and, you know, they uh, wrote um, uh, tickets for everything, and it was, uh, we, we uh, I remember we called it under the, uh, uh, the charges were laid under the Poultry Act, or in other words, for chicken something, uh, <laughs> and it was, you know, Section 41, motorcycle seat too low or something. But in any event, you know, I go in court, and there's all these guys there, you know, all these bikers, all patched up, and the judge who became years, uh, you know, on a very good friend of mine, Alex Murray, uh, he was actually, people thought he was a uh, left wing cause he threw out all the charges because the mm. uh, person who was there in command made a mistake. And instead of having it, and they're all almost all tickets, but instead of having them returned to coronation, he had them returned to cameras. Oh, okay. And so the lawyers representing all these bikers said, Oh, this is a violation. And as you can imagine, this was a really high profile event. Because these guys, 
these bikers used to go there every year and they would just do horrible things to the locals. And, you know, I was good, good to the, uh, the RCMP. They decided to uh, break them up. And, but the judge said, you know, this is uh, a violation of people's rights. And again, this is all before the charter and he threw out all the charges. Wow. And so there was a whole bunch of media there and I'm, you know, I come walking out of court and they said, well, you know, what are you going to do? And I said, well, um, I didn't go to law schools. I look at this. I didn't go to law school to protect the interests of bikers. So we're going to appeal each and every case. <laughs> now, at the time in doing that, I had I was unaware of the fact that in order to be able to make a statement about appealing, I had to get the approval of head office. Uh, <laughs> and so I had said we were going to do it without the necessary approval. But because it was so high profile, you know, they went along with it. We went, we argued, we won the case and went back and I prosecuted these guys and we prosecuted every single charge. And it was hilarious because, uh, you know, it was probably halfway through all of them. There was maybe about a hundred charges. You know, the bikers sort of looked at each other and went, this is a, you know, $40 ticket and I'm paying $5,000 in legal fees. Mm Mm-hmm. We'll just, we'll just plead guilty, yeah. which they did. And the really important thing was uh, you build and, and the cops really appreciated having somebody, in my case as a prosecutor, you know, who was prepared to go to the wall and do what was necessary and come up with innovative solutions in relation to that. And that was the beginning of my relationship. It started with the RCMP, but extended to the Edmonton police as well, too, and to a lesser extent, the Calgary police um, are on different cases where they, you know, and, and would literally come and see me and say, okay, here's our problem. What's the solution? Well, and that's definitely and one that's, thing we have issue with today. I mean, it, it, yeah. charges get thrown out for all kinds of things. And yes. some of them you look at uh, on face value and you're like, really? You couldn't, you know, just argue past that or, you know, people make yeah. errors. Can we not work with this? And uh, yeah, they get tossed and you don't even know they get tossed a lot of the time as the, the police officer, just decisions are made over in the courthouse and you find out weeks later. Yeah, it's a uh, very different world. And as I say, uh, and I mentioned earlier, I think a big part of it is that uh, the system has become much more risk averse mm-hmm. and management, you know, sees us, oh, we don't want to get in trouble about this. Yeah. And I mean, Take, take a look at what's going on here in Ottawa with this Freedom Convoy in, inquiry. Mm-hmm. Man, is that ever coming out, that, that sort of culture, uh, which is very different than what, uh, what I had. But just to continue on, essentially it was because of that developed relationship that I had with the, uh, uh, the police uh, that I uh, got uh, information on a guy who was a career criminal, a killer, who was serving a sentence. He got uh, transferred out of Montreal to the Edmonton Max, where he actually set up uh, a relationship with this half-wit warden. uh, And he uh, was able to become in control of the drug trafficking. And then he convinced the the warden that he should be given a day pass for his birthday. And he went on and, of course, escaped. Uh, He was was allowed to pick his own escort. Oh, that makes sense. Picked a guy that was smaller than me you know, and, and looked kind of frightened when he met me. Uh, and he escaped and killed at least two people before he was recaptured. Wow. And it was 
because of our, you know, relationships, I'll never forget the guy that was uh, in charge of the unit, the, I think they call it the serious crime unit, the RCMP. He was a staff sergeant then, Raymond Rowe, great guy, really, really bright guy. And I remember him saying, um, look, uh, this is something that's serious, and we can't just let this be a story we tell at prosecutor and cop golf tournaments. Mm -hmm. We got to do something to fix it because it turns out they had somebody who they were working with who was on the same range in the Edmonton Max as this guy, and he saw the whole thing unfold, how the guy manipulated the system. In fact, he was taking a course at Athabasca University, and he wrote his paper on it about how this guy had manipulated the system. But the uh, correctional system just covered everything up. And so I, the, the, my friends in uh, the RCMP were able to connect me with this guy. And it also turned out that he was the, um, uh, main, he became the main witness. Uh, I don't know if you remember the name Charlie Ng. No. He was the mass killer out of California. Okay. I'll look this up. And he was on the same range too. And this guy had connected with him. He was a he was a, a pretty nasty character as well, but he got all this, he was very good at getting information from people, and so as a result of that, I was able to get the information about what what had actually happened. And as you know, one of the key parts uh, of our uh, system is that if you want to get the right answers, you got to ask the right questions. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to do that, and I got all the information, and I'd had a you know, pretty solid relationship with guys in the media, even though we, you know, theoretically weren't allowed to talk to the media. Mm -hmm. But as I say, I was very lucky because the the guy who was the chief uh, crown of my office, Dave Plose, had my back. And the minister, um, I don't know if he's still a, a judge. His name was Ken Rostad. He was a lawyer out of uh, Camrose. And he was the, um, he had been the solicitor general, and then he became the justice minister. And uh, he approved for me to go and, uh, uh, you know, do a briefing of uh, members of parliament. And I was able to also make the connection. And this is an important thing because it was the beginning, really, of the collaboration and partnership. I got to know this uh, uh, couple in Edmonton named uh, uh, Gary and Sharon Rosenfeld. Their son had been one of uh, Clifford Olson's victims. And they had set up this organization called Victims of Violence that were helping uh, crime victims, you know, go through the justice system. And I got, you know, just to remind you, these were back in the days when, you know, victims weren't allowed to speak. They weren't allowed to attend parole hearings, anything like that. They were wonderful, wonderful people. Mm -hmm. And one of the victims of this guy who was the killer, Danielle Zingra, uh, was a young girl in uh, Lethbridge. And they were trying to help them. And so I connected them with them. And, you know, we uh, uh, ended up getting stuff done. I actually helped them get a lawyer and sue Correctional Services of Canada, which they won, for negligence in the way that they handled the case. And that was how it happened. And, and I, I went and I got a, you know, a lot of media uh, coverage and everything else. And after that happened, and it was in the news, Nathan, I got flooded with brown envelopes about other cases from police officers, from uh, even some uh, defense lawyers, even some judges. Just trying to break uh, stories. You know. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so as a result of all of that, I was involved in more and more. And then there was the case 
um, in um, uh, Edmonton. It was a career criminal named Albert Folston mm-hmm. who uh, uh, sh- uh, shot and killed a young Edmonton police officer named Ezio Ferrone. Folston was a career criminal. And again, the system covered everything up. And so I was actually able to, you know, dig in and get the, uh, and I built up some contacts as well inside the, uh, uh, the prison systems, but I was able to get the information. This guy was somebody who had 50 previous convictions. He'd been per- released on parole seven previous times. Each and every time while he was on parole, he breached his parole, which, by the way, is not a crime. Mm-hmm. He breached his parole by committing a new offense, but the parole board said, oh, what the heck, let's give him an eighth try. And then in the company of a, another career criminal dirtbag, in a botched armed robbery, they shot and killed this young uh, Edmonton police officer. So I got the details, and by this point, I'd established sort of a, a network. And again, you know, got permission to go and give uh, evidence before a parliamentary committee so as to give them the information so they could dig in and get the, uh, the truth about it. And that's how I got connected with the, uh, the Edmonton Police Association. I know he's still involved with you guys, a great guy, uh, Tony Simeone. Mm-hmm. And also with the Canadian Police, which I got to tell you, I didn't even know they existed at the time, the Canadian Police Association. And this would be in 1992. So I, no, it would have been earlier than that. It would have been, I think, like about maybe 91 or something. But they were just sort of getting things together, and they had decided they were led by a, just a great guy, a staff sergeant named Neil Jessup, that they wanted to get into the policy world because they realized that they needed to make changes. Yeah. And, and by coincidence, that's exactly what the conclusion that I came to. I loved being a prosecutor, but as I tell people, I got tired of tripping over the mistakes in the parole system in my courtroom, and I realized that the only way to fix things was to change federal laws. And that meant going to Ottawa, which I did. Well, and maybe uh, just to go back a little bit. So all these people are sending you stuff to say, hey, there's, you know, this is going on or we need you to talk about this or bring light to this. Do you ever get anything on the flip side where, like, were you getting any threats from people? Yes. Yeah. Uh, And in fact, on one of the um, uh, occasions, um, I'd actually uh, been told I, it was when the uh, uh, lawyers for the victim's family, the Woodward family, were suing. They told me I, the guy that I had arranged to be the lawyer had told me they were in uh, you know pretrial discovery, and he said it was apparent that the people from Correctional Service of Canada were monitoring you. Oh, it was corrections, and they had every interview you ever did. You know, so it was just sort of a wake up call. And yeah, I, I did actually have uh, a few cases. Sometimes I had to move my family out. Some guy escaped. Uh, it's a long story. <laughs> I won't go into mm. it. But uh, yeah, I mean, that is, uh, you, you're quite correct that as you uh, start to take this on, it does uh, attract attention and not all of it is positive. But uh, I was so fortunate in that the people I worked with throughout my career have been, you know, very supportive. And as I say, um, including at the Canadian Police Association, they had actually decided that they wanted to make a difference in changing laws. And so it started, we set up what's now uh, known as the Canadian Resource Center for Victims of Crime. It was the first national 
uh, victims uh, center. And I also, because I immediately got involved, like within days, I was immediately involved in the, you know, the issues uh, related to the police association. So they named me as well. I think it was the special counsel or something. And about a year later, uh, the guy who was Jimmy Kingston, the guy who was the executive uh, officer uh, of the association uh, was retiring. And so a bunch of the guys on the board came to me and said, hey, we decided we want you as the next uh, executive officer. And I said, well, you know, I thank you very much, but, you know, I'm not a cop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they said, that's okay. You know, you can think like us. So I did. And I, I got to tell you, for the next number of years, it was a, we and we accomplished an awful lot. Uh, and it was targeted in many ways on those highest risk repeat offenders, you know, helping crime victims, uh, including on a bunch of areas where we, they finally were given a voice in the system itself. Uh, and in doing things, and I remember being at a CPA conference one year when somebody you know, was the, one of the uh, members was saying like, why are we getting into all this policy stuff? And the guy who our president said is said, uh, uh, because getting our officers home at night is a labor and safety issue. Mm-hmm. And it was absolutely correct. Well, it's so- because as you know, so much of the danger that's being faced by police and it's worse now than it's been in a long time, um, is coming from the reality of our justice system. And it's not just Canada's, that a disproportionately large volume of crimes are committed by a disproportionately small number of offenders. And when you target those people, either operationally or by laws, you get huge public safety results. Yeah, well, and there's a number of factors that go into it, and I guess a a big part of your career has been working on bail reform. Um, Yes. So... What would you say if we're talking about bail reform and then maybe we'll get into like some of the media narratives because those have had a, a massive effect on people getting out. Uh, what would you say? So you said going to federal parliament, uh, that that's kind of the key is lobbying up there. But is there anything that could be done at a local level uh, just within each province or is it within each yeah. municipality? Let let me give you a good example of that. Um, and because it actually isn't even really just lobbying, um, I learned very uh, early on, and I you know I work with a bunch of different ministers on things. Instead of saying you know this is what we'd like you know and everything else, and you know the, then the officials go and draft it, and it comes back, and you got to you know deal with that. Uh, it's a lot better to hold, to do the work yourself and draft what the changes should be and give it to them and say, tell me why we can't do this. Okay. Okay. And that's the approach that I've taken over the years and I found it to be very successful. You're quite correct though that in our system, uh, different jurisdictions have different authorities. And so for example, um, there are things that can be accomplished at a provincial level. Um, and you don't have to change the uh, the criminal code. In fact, I think that's become, you know, something of a uh, dark hole that we fall into sometimes and say, oh, we have to do it by changing the criminal code. Well, no, uh, there's um, a good example of it was the, uh, and you're speaking about bail reform, the, uh, it's known, it was known as Wins Laws, the RCMP officer who was killed by a, mm-hmm. Career criminal in Edmonton. Yeah, uh, okay. just at the casino in uh, 
just into yeah, St. Albert. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And um, the uh, I managed to, I think it was, uh, I forget who the journalist was that got the actual tape of the bail hearing. And this guy was a like a career criminal mm-hmm. and he had breaches and nobody would, there was no warrants being acted on. In other words, um, there wasn't the necessary high risk repeat offender unit in place to deal with this. And um, the, the guy's record uh, wasn't even placed before the JP that was doing the bail hearing. Mm. And that's what Wynn's law was going to do. And it ran into opposition from the uh, the liberal government, and so they didn't want to do it. But it was a, a good example of things because I uh, I actually helped. Uh, uh, he was then he wasn't the premier yet, but Jason Kenney was a guy that I got to know uh, when I was still a prosecutor and uh, when he was a federal minister as well too. And um, I came out and did some work uh, for the that party in uh, 2018, I guess on rural crime. And amongst the suggestions I was making on things about the criminal justice system generally was about this, making sure that you maximize the effectiveness at bail hearings. Okay. And um, so the law that was proposed or the change in the law was to mandate the entry of the criminal record because it hadn't been done in that case. And the feds had turned it down. They wouldn't do it. I said, well, you know what? Just change the uh, crown policy manual. Mm-hmm. And put it in the manual that prosecutors are required to enter the criminal record into a uh, bail hearing because it's easier. Like it, it falls under the provincial jurisdiction at that point. Correct. Yes. Correct. You know, bottom line, do what works. Yeah. And that was a good example of it that uh, that actually did. And there are many other examples that we are seeing. Um, and I'll I'll uh, I'll jump to to one other thing that I think is among the most important. Um, I got uh, involved in when I was at the police association in reviewing uh, the crime statistics that were released. And I got to tell you, uh, and I, I, I've been writing about them and I every year uh, uh, review and report on uh, usually mostly the uh, police reported crime statistics. Mm. I just finished going through them uh, uh, that were released maybe about a month ago. And um, it's a goldmine of information. But you got to know what to look for. And having been a prosecutor, I knew what information the system actually had. And there are so many things where we have information that is really relevant, okay, about both systemic performance, but also about how the current laws and policies are working. Um, When I say systemic performance, what I was particularly uh, thinking of at the time was about um, uh, how, for example, uh, uh, judges in different judicial districts were handling bail. Because as I'm sure you're aware, uh, and any of your other listeners, including if there's some defense counsel out there, mm-hmm. that there are judges who are known to be more likely to release somebody on bail than others and, you know, that becomes part of the strategy to try to get your case in front of that person. Well, even the conditions so one of the things get. I recommended was let's report um, the number of crimes committed by people who are on uh, bail uh, and, re- and report on it by judicial district. Because we do gather that information, we just don't report it. Mm-hmm. And that actually got put into, 
I helped uh, the uh, United Conservative Party with their election platform in for 2019, and they uh, called it uh, the uh, and made a commitment to uh, enacting the Public's Right to Know Act, and it was the number of crimes by judicial district reported, you know, and province, but the number of crimes committed by people who were on bail, probation, uh, conditional sentence, under a uh, reconnaissance, all so that you can get an insight into how the system is actually working. And the other side of it, and this is one of the things about policy that's important in having that operational perspective, because it's a, a the more you have that understanding, the better you can um, identify what the problems are and then draft solutions to them. And as I put it, and I was told it really pissed off Stephen Harper when I wrote it. It was the first year in uh, 2010 that I actually wrote it. And I said, you know, we don't need to be tough on crime, but we need to be honest about crime so we can be smart about crime. Yes. Yeah. And, and that is that is true today, obviously. I would say that uh, you just see that in the media narratives. Uh, and a lot of what mm, I'll say certain political types or political parties put out there, they only talk about the, uh, say the statistics that Correct. meet their, their narrative, uh, whatever they want you to think. Uh, but nobody's looking at the root cause of a lot of problems and a lot of the bail stuff, uh, like you're saying, it's a small group that commits the large portion of the crime, yep. but the people that are getting out and the reasons they're being let out. Uh, they're going back to their very own communities and reoffending. Of course, but people only well, people now are treating the accused like the victim. Yeah, the real victim of the crimes are getting left behind, and even those communities, it's like, well, nobody's talking about who calls us the most, who are the most likely victims. Correct. So yeah. they only want to tell you the stat about who we arrest. You know what we we saw that we saw that exactly what you just described. We saw that exactly. Another area that I got involved in was in dealing with the uh, removal of non-citizens who were convicted of crimes, mm. but we couldn't get them out of the country. Mm. And there was a guy, uh, his name was uh, Clinton Gale, once again, a career criminal who was from Jamaica, um, had been ordered deported, but there was bureaucratic delays. And, looks, you know, in all fairness, a lot of times it turns out that it's been the uh, their home country doesn't want them back, so they aren't cooperative. But he was released from custody, and I'll ex- get into this a little bit more in a minute, mm-hmm. from a frankly broken system, which remains broken in my opinion today. And um, they couldn't get him out, so a uh, judge ultimately says, oh, okay, I'm going to release you from immigration detention, and uh, you know, you're uh, free on uh, bail. And under the immigrant, what's now the Immigration Refugee Protection Act, uh, you're uh, free to be released. And uh, guess what? He went back to his uh, drug dealing uh, career, and he ended up shooting and killing a young uh, Toronto police officer named Todd Bayless. And um, you know that's how we started digging into exactly the issues that you're talking about, and discovered a whole lot of operational things about the. Uh, uh, you know, larger border security, but immigration screening and enforcement, which I'm still involved in. And uh, I'll get to that in a second. But in doing the work that we were doing, uh, as you can imagine, we had exactly the same kind of concerns you were, you raised, you know, like, 
what's the reaction going to be from uh, uh, communities? Because this guy was from Jamaica. And, you know, we w- went to a, uh, a briefing in Scarborough and uh, the people there, you know, who were uh, almost all, you know, uh, Jamaicans themselves, uh, I was expecting there might be some pushback. Exactly the opposite. I remember this this one lady, you know, it's our kids that are being attacked and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, pulled into gangs by these people. We want more police there, not less. Mm-hmm. It's quite something. It was quite something. And that's actually, we got the truth about what had been going on in these cases. That's how I got uh, actually connected with the, uh, in those days, they were called the Customs Excise Union Duane Excise. It's now the Customs and Immigration Union. Uh, and I got the information and I got to know from the frontline officers, you know, who were very candid and said that there's cases that are easy uh, to handle and ones that are high risk. And so guess what? The system focuses on the easy cases. Well, and so kind of talking about like uh, even the resurgence of uh, reoffender crime that you had listed as a a point that we could get into. Um, Like, let me give you just one other example of something though, that's, that's important because uh, you'll see it. It it started um, when I, I think it started when I was actually with the Ontario government and um, it was, uh, 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 pre-trial custody credit. Mm-hmm. You may uh, be familiar with that section yep. 719, subsection three of the criminal code. Yeah. And it says that, you know, if the uh, person has been uh, denied bail, the uh, court at sentencing can take that into consideration in deciding what the sentence should be. Now, in my day, if you were denied bail, cause you were a repeat offender, it was known as doing dead time. Mm-hmm. Right, because it didn't count. So guess what? The bad guys pled guilty faster. It started in Ontario, where some judges were complaining about the um, the nature of the uh, uh, bail condition. Sorry, the uh, 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 pretrial custody conditions. They weren't as uh, sort of constructive as a prison after their sentence, and so uh, they started speaking about it. And the Ontario government didn't do anything about it. So the judges this time armed with the charter, uh, decided there were charter violations taking place. And so they gave themselves the power to give extra pretrial credits, even though when you read the law, it says that if if somebody is detained uh, because of the offense that they were committed, well, that's not, in this case, the ones we're talking about, they were uh, detained because uh, of the offense, but also because of their record. And so they started giving them double credit yeah, and then even triple credit. And in some cases, quadruple credit. And without realizing where we were going, we were rewarding repeat offenders. Mm -hmm. And guess what? Guess who figured that out more than anybody? Okay. The bad guys and their lawyers. Yes. And so, so, and it, it eroded public confidence in the justice system because the judges would actually say, okay, yes, you know, the sentence is now six years. And that's what the media would almost always report. But you had to read what was on the warrant of committal because it really wasn't six years. It was actually turned out to be like, you know, 18 months when you took into account the pretrial custody credits. Now, the uh, the Harper government uh, actually uh, uh, introduced some reforms to that and it's improved. But that's the kind of thing that was maybe one of the 
most significant things I saw societally, I think, because it absolutely undermined public confidence in our system. And our system is, as you know, is based on that public confidence. Well, and so this kind of leads me to my question where, and I guess we'll throw judges into this now too, uh, kind of bringing up what you just were speaking about, but are the politicians, the lawmakers, the judges, are they doing this stuff for easy political points or votes? Or is there actual malicious intent behind this? Or is it a combination? Because I don't think uh, ignorance, like uh, they can't have the foresight to see that this is going to cause a problem down the road. I don't find that as a real valid excuse. These are smart people, uh, you would hope, and they should have some sort of foresight into this. Uh, Also, everything kind of goes in a cycle. Like we know if we keep letting people out, and letting them, uh, not punishing them, uh, they learn and they know how to take advantage of the system or weaponize the system. So are these, what's going on with everybody? Why are they allowing this to happen? Well, in my opinion, um, frankly, the, your comment about the sort of political motivation, uh, I think for politicians is absolutely the case. Hmm. Uh, they've got, you know, a message that they can put out about how, oh, you know, this is the way to go and the being tough on, look at all the stuff about uh, uh, gun regulation that's going on right now. Yeah. I mean, and and as you can tell from my earlier remarks, I listen, I, I fully supported the long gun registry and the organizations did a terrible job in defending it. But um, that becomes political and it can become political on both sides, which is unfortunate. Mm-hmm. What you want to do here is do what works and listen to the frontline people. Yes. That's, I think, the single most important thing. With respect to the uh, uh, judiciary and the judges, or as I like to call them, the juristocracy, um, we have created an entirely new system uh, with the charter. Uh, and it has given, um, you know, uh, not even leverage, a level of authority that you look at things, look at the, the recent case where the uh, Alexandre Bissonnette, the guy who was the uh, uh, Quebec mosque shooter, mm-hmm. and uh, the judge actually, and that was an amendment that the Harper government had brought in. And it was one of the things that we had been advocating for uh, was that, that, you know, that repeat killers, multiple kill, serial killers, used to only get the same sentence, right? Life, no parole, 25 years, mm-hmm. which, of course, welcome to Canada, didn't actually mean 25 years because up until a while ago, you could apply for early release after 15 years. And, oh, Section 746, uh, any pretrial time spent before you were sentenced is deducted from that. Mm-hmm. I've, I've dealt with so many cases and helped victims' families. And how we got involved with the police association was because it was really only coming into effect. Uh, the, the law had been changed uh, years before then, but it was really only coming into effect in the early 90s. And because it applied to uh, first-degree murder cases, um, you know, killing a police officer is, uh, by definition, a first-degree murder case. So many of those cases where these people were coming up for this early review were in fact family members of police officers who'd been murdered. And I I, I will never forget the sense of betrayal that those families felt from their justice system. What do you mean we've got to go back to court and go through all this stuff? Mm -hmm. And you know, I attended 
parole board uh, hearings on behalf of a, of a whole lot of victims, uh, including uh, the families of uh, Clifford Olson's victims. And a lot of these guys, they know they're not getting out, but they enjoy tormenting the victims. Mm-hmm. And our system was letting them do that. And so, you know, we changed it and we got rid of the faint hope clauses that was called. It, by the way, had an 80% success rate. But we got rid of that clause and we actually allowed for consecutive parole and eligibility periods. I was involved in some of that. I got to tell you that um, I had recommended that they make it relatively flexible simply because in today's world, anything that you know can be seen through the lens of increased judicial discretion is more likely to be viewed as constitutional. And instead, they chose to go the route of that all of the ineligibility periods had to be 25 years. The judge in the Bissonnette case didn't follow that. And he said, well, said uh, you know, in this case, I'm going to make it 40 years. And unfortunately, uh, you know, what was it? Uh, uh, I think a little less than a year ago, the Supreme Court just struck that down. Mm-hmm. And so we're now back in a circumstance where, uh, and, the, the uh, victim's families, and it was a, a corrections officer who told me this, the bad guys, they used to refer to the extra, you know, uh, people killed as freebies. <laughs> Jeez. And it makes absolutely no sense when you think about it, especially in a discretion-based system. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't we give judges the discretion to be able to increase the parole? And look, if you want to make it, then there's a maximum cap on it, 50 years or whatever it is. Go ahead and do it. Yeah. But don't just give up. And that is unfortunately what the government has uh, has done right now, is they've just given up and they've refused to even take into consideration, uh, you know, changing the law. And you, you know what? The other thing is there's a process. A lot of people don't realize this. Under the uh, Supreme Court Act, it's called a uh, reference. You can take the law and the government, the federal government can send it to the Supreme Court and say, Here's the the law that we're proposing to pass or the act that we're proposing. Can you tell us if it's constitutional? You don't have to wait the years for it to go through the system. Mm-hmm. We actually use that in the uh, the case I was telling you about, uh, the uh, Charlie Ng case, where he was, and I'd been involved in helping with that, and, uh, uh, you know, suggested, look, because the issue was if we send him back to California, he would be facing the death penalty. And the argument was, oh, that's unconstitutional. So I said, well, listen, why don't we just refer that question to the Supreme Court and save ourselves years? And it did, and it worked, and they said, you can send them back, and we did. So there are tools that are available on the issues that you're raising, Mm -hmm. but I think probably the the single most important thing I would say that I've learned over the years is the importance of listening to, as I say, the frontline operational people who have the those kinds of insights into how the system works and how it doesn't work, also including crime victims so that you understand, you know, what it is that they're going through and making sure that there's some equity and fairness and balance in all of this. And that was one thing that we were actually able to do when I was at the police association is that we got, we pulled together, frankly, the uh, crime victim groups and the uh, police associations so that they would work together as uh, as partners on some of these reforms. Well, and, and it worked. Yeah, and you know what? Just having some creativity, maybe, and looking for other paths. You know, if something doesn't work, yes, one way. Well, yeah. talk to some people, find another way to make it work. Uh, you know, it, there was a um, 
when we were doing a review, when I went to the uh, Ontario government, uh, uh, it was um, uh, I'd gotten to know Mike Harris, and uh, I'd helped them, and they had actually, uh, this would be in 1994, I met with a whole bunch of them, and we were promoting changes to the justice system, and I convinced them that as a provincial party, they could take that as a cause and uh, champion it. And I, it's funny because I remember the, one of the the ministers, this was at a, an event, and one of the ministers was there said, well, you know, it's interesting, but, you know, these are almost all federal issues, and we're a provincial party. Why should we do this? I said, well, if you look in the news, all the top stories are about crime, mm-hmm. okay? And citizens and voters don't give a damn about which level of government is. Do you? They want to know, do you understand about this? And if you're speaking up as an advocate for change, that's something that's going to, you know, you're going to be rewarded for. And it was a young staffer, uh, ironic world who years later ultimately became one of Stephen Harper's chief of staff. <laughs> and he actually looked and he smiled and he said, you know what? Good policy makes good politics. Mm-hmm. And that's another lesson that I've learned over the years as well, too. Uh, and it was, we were able to, to actually get stuff done and it was, uh, they got elected in uh, 95, and uh, I kept in touch with them on some things. And Mike asked me, could you come and help us with some of this? Because um, we don't, you know, we've made all of these commitments, but we don't really know how to actually get it done. And we need, you know, somebody's help from the inside who knows about it so that we can get it done. And that's, they gave me an order in council appointment in relation to that. And, and that's what we worked on was actually on getting stuff uh, done and from the front line. But it was, I'll never forget speaking to the uh, administrative people in the provincial bureaucracy. And as you can imagine, they weren't real pleased that we were there asking these questions. And it was in Ontario it was called the victim witness assistance program or VWAP. And I'm speaking with these people and they're, they're explaining and they're saying, you know, yes, uh, uh, we're here to help the crown deal with victims. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, okay. Uh, do you think maybe you should be here to help victims deal with the crown? Yeah. Wouldn't that be better? And we were able to make some, uh, some changes, but you know, talking one of the ones, a p- part of this that I've seen over the years, that's really uh, important too, is it isn't all just about, um, you know, law or policy or even, or something like that, because, uh, making sure that the funding allocations are made to be able to do the right things is incredibly important. Mm-hmm. And I saw that I've been involved uh, with se- uh, several, both public safety and uh, national security technologies after 9-11. Because of the work that I'd done, I was uh, appointed as the special security advisor for the government 11 after 9-11. Sorry, government of Ontario after 9-11. And um, I got involved in dealing with uh, uh, its automated analytical radar surveillance on the uh, border. And uh, trust me, um, that's what we need in relation to gun smuggling coming from the United States, because that's where, you know, almost all of the guns are coming from. And is this over the Great Lakes you're talking? Yes. Yeah. And the St. Lawrence River. Yes. And you know what? When When we do a better job at the ports of entry, which we are doing, okay, the bad guys don't go away. They just move to another location. Mm-hmm. And so it's between the ports of entry. And here's another thing that I've worked on over the years unsuccessfully. 
Uh, you know, you're familiar with the um, Canada-U.S. cross-border agreement called the Shiprider Program? Yeah, the, it's in the Great Lakes. They got like a Mountie. Uh, it was a uh, ATF we or put, somebody all together. Essentially, essentially, it's, it's uh, uh, the uh, U.S. Coast Guard is the lead and the RCMP are the lead in Canada. Mm-hmm. And it's got, you know, all the American law enforcement agencies, local, state, everything else. And in Canada, it's the uh, RCMP and local police. And by remarkable coincidence, we don't use the same language to uh, discuss who's eligible. And as a result of that, you know who's not part of the uh, cross-border law enforcement program? I'm going to guess CBS. Canada Border Services Agency. (laughs) Duh. Yeah. Okay. You know, they need the resources to be able to do it. They they have become a very sophisticated law enforcement organization. And it's just a good example. And we are actually using the um, greater technology I'm uh, talking about comes from a little company in uh, the Niagara Peninsula called Exhibitor Radar uh, that has just grown phenomenally. They're, they work all over the world, and Canada, the U.S. as well, too. They're actually deployed on the uh, shiprider uh, ships, so it's a good thing. But, I mean, another technology that I discovered uh, while we were making some changes in relation to high-risk offenders uh, and changing the statutory release and on preventive reconnaissance and everything about that was the uh, effectiveness of electronic monitoring Hmm. uh, in dealing. And you've been talking about bail, and that's just a perfect example of it because the technology has become really, really sophisticated, including in – uh, uh, frankly, the uh, company that I got to know and assist is uh, based out of Red Deer, and uh, in the that same platform we were talking about with uh, for the United Conservative Party, they made a commitment of two million dollars for uh, deploying this modern technology uh, to deal with repeat offenders and also to protect domestic violence victims, because the technology is so sophisticated now. This is like ankle monitors. Things of that nature. And yeah, but it, it, yes, correct. And I got to tell you, again, it was a question of funding because I was involved in getting the legislation changed to authorize it because there was a Supreme Court ruling from years ago that you had to do it in a certain way. And we got all that done. But the one thing that we didn't do and that I had failed to realize was to make sure that there was funding for it. Because if it's a tool that's available, you know, for example, to the Crown, if they're saying, well, we want to have this guy on electronic monitoring and we're going to release him. If you don't have a program in operation where it's available or you got funding for it, you're not going to ask the court to order it because no one's going to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's actually to the point where uh, uh, these guys in uh, the, the company in uh, Red Deer is called Safe Tracks. They've got uh, people, including, you know, like lawyers and the bad guys themselves who realize you know, uh, this is something I want to do so that they become, quote, privately funded. And it's also there were different projects over the years that the provincial government had um, and uh, Edmonton police in particular, but also Calgary police, the RCMP on a, a more limited basis. Um, they actually, even though the funding was cut from the provincial government, they know it's so useful and it helps keep the community safe and also protect victims. It's a huge force multiplier for police, as you can imagine, yeah. right? Because you can tell where somebody is, you can pre-program no-go zones, they're not allowed to go 
near somewhere like a school if you're a you know pedophile and it gives an alert it's got th- uh, real-time three-way comms and everything else so it works both ways and that's something that uh i think is often overlooked is about the effectiveness that actual targeted technologies can have to achieve those same basic criminal justice goals well and on the border issue uh because this is something i haven't had too many guests on here uh, to talk about this yet but I think it's a fascinating topic. It is. And just knowing what I know and, and from the guys we deal with, like a, with our gang suppression unit, and yep. we handle some uh, informants who are working in, uh, say, the world of importing, exporting. Um, yep. They say how, like, uh, on the Canada side, you know, at the ports, you've got minimal policing. You've got a couple people there at any given time. And, you know, there's thousands of containers coming through. Yep. Uh, even at the land crossings, you send 10 trucks through, you budget in for one of them disappearing to police, but you got nine more coming in. So when we have the nice you know, photo ops with all the stuff, guns or drugs, uh, it's like, yeah, but that that's a, a drop in the ocean of what's correct. A, yeah. not allowed to come through, but it's, it's coming through and we're not doing as much as we could. But when you look at the U.S. side, um, so in the port in Washington, They've got an entire police service for the port yes. and all kinds of equipment in, in addition to the, uh, the Coast Guard working together. But uh, it's just interesting how we have such a vast, uh, just this huge gap in protecting our borders and nobody's really addressing it. And you think that would be the number one thing first. Let's stop the outside issues from coming in because we have enough here to deal with. And then once we kind of got a handle on some of it, then we can kind of look inward maybe. Yeah. But we just allow the free flow of things in and out. Um, and, and CBSA, I mean, they could easily do with a, a ton more funding and find lots of things to do with it. Well, you know, um, uh, as I say, I've been working with the union that represented them. And actually, good news, there is a... Uh, I happened to be going through something looking uh, on a different issue, and I discovered on the uh, different government websites, which are sadly increasingly out of date, that uh, CBSA now has a new president. Mm -hmm. Her name is uh, Erin O'Gorman, small world. I worked with her uh, when I first uh, went to help Stockwell Day in 2006. I'm one of the guys that did the review that led to the arming of the uh, CBSA officers. Mm -hmm. And as you can imagine, the opposition to that in Ottawa was fierce. And so I was asked to come in and help, and I did, and we got it it done. And Aaron was a uh, chief of staff to the deputy minister at Public Safety at the time, who I know this may come as a surprise, but didn't like me very much. Uh, but Aaron and I became friends. She's a really bright person that, you know, is got that focus of, I want to know the facts because we got to get stuff done, but you are a hundred percent correct in relation to, uh, especially the, uh, personnel shortage at CBSA. And this, this is a, a, a cross party thing. The real, it is the, the real, uh, biggest example of, of this came actually during the uh, conservative government when Vic Taves was the minister and they implemented what was called uh, DRAP, Deficit Reduction Action Program. And it was supposed to reduce, you know, administrative bureaucracy, which it did in other places, but um, 
for reasons which never have been entirely clear, uh, Vic applied it and got rid of frontline personnel, mm-hmm. especially in the intelligence branches, which is exactly what you need, right? When you want to make sure that you're able to detect what's coming. Yeah. And so they are still suffering from a shortage of anywhere up to like 1,500 people. The Auditor General has reported on this before as well, too. And it's a, you know, a situation that needs to be addressed because as um, uh, I think it was actually uh, Julian Fantino, who's an old friend of mine, used to be the, uh, the chief in Toronto, once said at an event I was at, um, what gets through the border illegally ends up in the street, on the streets in our communities. Yep. Absolutely correct. So, um, and I know we're kind of getting short on time here. Oh, so yes. we're going to keep you forever. <laughs> um, there's so many things we could talk about. Uh, just real quickly, because maybe we'll touch on this since we kind of discussed it just before recording, but, uh, and it's a future topic that I'm going to have some people on about, but the foreign influence of China speaking about border issues. Right. Um, you had a bit of insight on this when we were talking. Um, can you kind of give a bit of an idea of maybe uh, a very general overview, uh, if you've got enough time, of what sure. people are talking um, about with this? Very quickly, um, I was at the Canadian Police Association. This would have been probably like 1994. And I got a phone call from a uh, liberal uh, MP cabinet minister who was an old friend of mine. His name was David Kilgore. He was a prosecutor in Alberta as well. And he said, you know, I've got these guys that I've met and they're in my office. David was responsible for, uh, it was like a sub-minister in foreign affairs. And he was responsible for Asia Pacific. And he says, yeah, there's this guy, he's an intelligence officer with foreign affairs. There's another guy who's an RCMP a liaison officer from over in uh, uh, Hong Kong. This is before it was handed back. Mm-hmm. And um, so they're telling you about all this stuff about, you know, Chinese organized crime groups and the government engaged. You know, it's just really complicated. Could you, you know, you're good at sort of sorting this stuff out. Could you come in and uh, meet with these people? And I did and learned all about this. And, uh, um, it, it ultimately what the information they had uncovered was what the Americans referred to ultimately as the Trinity, the three groups, which were Chinese triads, organized crime, um, uh, the Chinese, community that were abroad and in, engaged in business, which was something that was real and, you know, we're much more aware of it today, and the Chinese government that was engaged in uh, espionage. And it was their work together, and it was these guys who really had done it. They dug into things. They got the all the material. They did fantastic investigation for all of this, and they were bringing it forward saying, like, we need to be doing something about this. This is serious. And it ultimately led to a joint RCMP uh, CSIS investigation called Project Sidewinder. And I'm going to assume that all of your uh, listeners have some level of security clearance. So I can tell you that the Sidewinder report is actually available on a special uh, security uh, uh, site. It's known as the Internet. Just Google the word Sidewinder and you can find it. Okay. But it is the details of this. And it was in... um, uh, I believe it was in 1997 when it was actually released. And the morning that the that CSIS and the RCMP were having uh, their meetings to decide on next steps, because it provided a lot of details. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the message came from uh, the prime minister's office, shut it down, destroy all documents. And over the years, I, I got to be very good friends with these two guys who were involved in it. And uh, they had their own networks. So I ended up building my own networks as well, too, uh, in Canada, but as well internationally. And um, it's something that has been around for a very, very long time. And I think the good news is it's gotten more exposure probably like in the last two years yeah. than it has in the last three decades. So that's a positive thing to see because, um, and as I, as I uh, <laughs> learned as uh, when I was a prosecutor, was my friends in the RCMP uh, made this point to one guy that I'd mentioned, the corporal, or sorry, the staff sergeant, uh, Raymond Rowe, he said uh, to me one day, you got to know how to think like the bad guys. Mm-hmm. Ex- exactly. Exactly. And that is the situation with China and we're facing you know, uh, unprecedented threats. The good news is, in my opinion, it's getting unprecedented exposure and there are more and more people. I mean, we've even finally got a, a Canada-China special committee of parliament, yeah. which is such a good thing uh, because that's something on the horizon that we need to pay attention to. Well, uh, we appreciate you coming on here and okay. telling us a bit about it. Thanks, Nathan. Uh, yeah, thank you for being on, and um, I'll I'll make contact with you off sure offline here. But uh, appreciate the time. Okay, thank you. Bye bye. Okay, bye.